What does the Bible say about music? Here are some, yes, sweetheart. Here are some scriptural references, not an exhaustive list. The world was born to the sound of music. Job 38, verses 6 and 7 say, Who laid its cornerstones? Speaking about God. The rhetorical question, Who laid the universe's cornerstone while the morning stars sang together? Now, are there any astronomers here? Uh, we're told that uh, there is music in the spheres. I think that's even in one of our hymns, music of the spheres. And I think there's some evidence that uh, sounds emanate from distant stars. It's already in the Bible. The morning stars sang together. The first explicit reference to music in the Bible, however, is the one I mentioned last night, Genesis 4.21, where Jubal, the sixth or seventh from Cain, I forget which, is identified as the father of all who play the harp and the flute. But I find it interesting that in Genesis 31, verse 27, Laban, who is not our favorite Bible character by any means, because he's always cheating Laban, uh, rebukes Jacob, rather hypocritically, I think, saying to him when Jacob is about ready to take off with Rachel and Leah, two wives that he got while in Haran, the Bible says that Laban said, Why did you run off secretly and deceive me? Why didn't you tell me so I could send you away with joy and singing to the music of tambourines and harps? Now, I don't believe Laban for a minute. I think he wanted more work out of Jacob. But uh, at least it's interesting that apparently in that society, music was part of cultural festivities. And you had farewells for people. And do you ever have farewells at your churches when folks leave to move to Alaska or Philadelphia or wherever they're going? You might sing a song, God be with us till we meet again, or Blessed be the tie that binds. Uh, I don't know what songs Laban wanted to sing with Jacob, but uh, he wanted to make music and have a send-away party. It's in the Bible. Exodus 15, <clears throat> verse 1, records Moses' song after the safe passage of the Israelites through the Red Sea. And uh, it just seemed to me that that ought to be put to music. So, of Exodus chapter 15. So I wrote this song. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly Samuel 16, verse 18, David, the shepherd boy, is described as one who 
knows how to play the harp. Kind of like a 10th century B.C. guitar. And we know of its effect on King Saul's emotional life, don't we? 2 Samuel 19, verse 35, tells us that Barzillai, sounds like uh, somebody in the Godfather saga, was fearful that when he would grow old, he would no longer be able to hear the voices of men and women singers. That was the thing that bothered him the most about growing old. He would uh, lose his hearing and not be able to enjoy music. It's in the Bible. First Chronicles 15:16, David appoints a Levitical choir with instruments, stringed, wind, and percussion. And as we learn from other texts, this comp- choir comprised both men and women. There is some question, however, whether the entire congregation sang during corporate congregational worship. Maybe just the Levitical choir. It's not clear. Lamentations 5.14 speaks of the young men who made music at the city gate. Now, that might slip by you and you might say, that's a strange sort of a little detail. Why should we care about that? Uh, because of the city gate. The city gate was the most important place in the city. It was the place where the judges sat. It was the place where the government of the city took place. And thus, if the young men made music at the city gate, people would gather to hear that music. It was kind of like the uh, concert hall of ancient Judahite cities. Okay, let's look at another music maker. George Frederick. Are you ready for this? Handel. Can you pronounce it correctly? It is not Handel, and it's not Handel, but as any good German knows, the A in this name is like the sound in the word let or letter. Say, eh, eh. Now say, handle. Good for you. You now know how to pronounce the guy's name. Now, what do we know about him? Well, when we hear that name, we instinctively think of the masterful oratorio Messiah. But the great composer, Handel, created a vast output of music. He was born in 1685, the same year as Johann Sebastian Bach, interestingly. He was the eighth child in his family, the first of his 60-year-old father's second marriage. Handel's father was a surgeon with a court appointment in Halle in central Germany, and he would take George Frederick to the Duke's court while making his medicine rounds. The young lad was permitted to play the organ, and he impressed the Duke with his remarkable musical development. Wilhelm Zakow, Handel's only teacher, discovered that the boy was indeed a child prodigy. He could really play well, with the result that the the student at age 11, how many here are 11? Raise your hand. Any 11? Yes. At the same age that you are, Handel would sometimes play the organ for his teacher. Of his 74 years, Handel lived for more than 50 of them in England. Maybe you didn't know that. Unlike Bach, he never claimed to be a church musician. His oratorios, though sacred in their text, were produced not in churches, where Bach's music was used and performed, if that's the right word. But Handel's music was indeed performed in theaters. One could say that Handel was the other side of the musical coin to Bach, although the two, as far as we know, never met in person. Bach wrote for the conscience. Handel wrote for the audience. 
Bach's musical culture was distinctly German. Handel's more Italian, dramatic, lyrical. Take, for instance, the chorus, All We Like Sheep, from Messiah. Many of you have sung that chorus. How many have ever sung All We Like Sheep? Yes, many of you. When you sing that chorus, you can almost picture the sheep wandering astray as the melody wanders astray and meanders all over the staff, straining the ability of even the most competent choristers. It's one of the more difficult choruses to sing because it's so fast and so technically involved. With Messiah, Handel achieved perhaps the most widespread critical recognition ever set upon a composer. For generations, Messiah has been known by thousands of people, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions. And for some of them, they know it almost by heart. In Handel's repertoire, it is the only biblical oratorio drawing on New Testament material. He completed Messiah, are you ready for this, in 24 days. After setting down the notation for the Hallelujah Chorus, he wrote, I think I did see all heaven before me and the great God himself. And after the last Amen, he wrote on the score, I think God has visited me, not from me, but from heaven comes all. That's Handel. Say his name again. George Frederick. Wait a minute. Did I hear some Handels in there or some Handels? Let's hear it again. George Frederick. Good. All right. That's definitely accepted. I'll give you a B plus. Okay. Back to uh, the Bible about music. Music typically had a principal place in the Bible as we read many places of feasts and festivals of marriages and even funerals, the singing was found. Our Savior's incarnation was accompanied by the thunderous doxology of a whole lot of angels. <laughs> Luke 2.14, glory to God in the highest, the angels were saying. Then we have the example of Jesus and his disciples after the Last Supper. We're told that they had sung a hymn and then they went out into the Garden of Gethsemane. They were singing probably Psalms 113 to 118. Those psalms are called the Hallel from the first words of Psalm 113, verse 1. Praise. Hallelujah. Hallel. Praise. So the Hallel was Psalms 113 to 118, and as Matthew 26:30 tells us, after they had sung those psalms, they went out into the garden. When you go on and read in the New Testament in the book of Acts, you come to verse 25 of chapter 16, and there you find Paul and Silas in prison, moaning and complaining that they have been arrested unjustly. Gone. <laughs> What is it you say when it's wrong? Not. <laughs> Not. No, the Bible says they were singing hymns. Isn't that great? Paul's letters to both the Ephesian and the Colossian churches prescribe the corporate singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Okay, let's sing a spiritual song using a very unspiritual tune which I have stolen from the world. The song is The Lord's Way, and it is a remetrification that I've made of Psalm 1. I believe that it's a faithful translation of the psalm from the Hebrew, and it's uh, put in, uh, in metrical form. And uh, because it's The Lord's Way... Blessed is he that walks not according to the counsel of man, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. It seemed to me that we could grab Frank Sinatra's pagan 
song of man's way. I'll do it my way. And we're going to steal it, pinch it from him, and press it into new service. And we're going to praise our God in a 180 degree different direction from Frank's signature song. So if this were a worship service, I wouldn't even think of doing it. But uh, in this music seminar, I think it's appropriate. And uh, you all know the tune. You've heard it many times. And I'll play it for you. And it's on the overhead. And it's the Lord's way. I'll get rid of the title. Is that in is that focused? Is that okay? I better take the words over here so that I make sure I am with you. Frank is gone now, but if he were here I would say, eat your heart out. Oh, happy is the one who scorns advice of man's invention. His way corresponds not to the course of sin's intention, but what he loves the most is doing what the Bible's words say, delight, both day and night, to know the Lord's way. good ones. In, uh, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12, the ascended, kingly, reigning Lord Jesus is portrayed as fulfilling the psalmist's determination. In Psalm 22, we read, 
in verse 22, I will sing God's praises in the presence of the congregation. That tells me that when we worship our Savior, our head, is, is worshiping with us. He's not worshiping, but he's receiving worship. He is singing with us the praises of God. Isn't that wonderful to know that? Well, we are, we are united to him who is our head. And I just love that verse and see it as a mighty fulfillment of the 22nd Psalm. Music, though marred by sin, very much so, is surely included in those aspects of the created order that are restored by the redemption we enjoy in Christ. Take a look, for instance, at Romans chapter 8, verses 20 and 21. There we read, that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. That's verse 21. Verse 20, For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that, verse 21, the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. I think that's kind of what we just did. That's part of the restoration of this created order, fallen as it is, where we can take a a tune like that, which uh, is used for the service of the glorification of man, and we can press it into the service of the glory of God. Uh, The last book of the Bible, Revelation, has the church of the ages lifting a new song, the song of Moses and of the Lamb a new song of praise unto the triune God. Let's look at that. Revelation 5, 9, and 10 has something to say about music. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. That's the new song of the Lamb, which we add to the song of Moses. Yes, we sing psalms and hymns, so now you know where I stand on that question. Let's draw some conclusions from our rather spotty survey of biblical um, uh, passages on music. First, music may rightly form a part of our social lives outside of specific worship. It's okay to make music when you're not in church. Second, music, when used in worship situations, is not for entertainment, but for praise. Now, when we praise, we sometimes speak to each other. Not that we praise each other, but we call upon each other to praise the Lord. That's a perfectly appropriate way to sing hymns and psalms. Many hymns and psalms do call upon your brothers and sisters in the congregation to lift up their voice to the Lord. Though corrupted by sin, as is everything, music is still clearly one of God's gifts. And I would be very surprised if there's not going to be a lot of music making in heaven. Music may take, lastly, music may take many different forms some of which will appear strange to us. Uh, Roger uh, has challenged me at dinner time tonight to have another look at Richard Wagner, or not Richard Wagner, Richard Strauss, uh, who I thought I didn't like because I've heard some of his music and it wasn't the greatest. But he said that there are four songs written by Richard Strauss, and I'm going to try to find those because he says they're, they're gorgeous. So I'll take your word for it, Roger, and I'll let you know if you're wrong. Take five, lesson three. I thought I was all ready. 
but I can't find lesson three. Here it is. There are six of these, and all six of them are found here. You can come and get it if you'd like. They're printed all on this one page, and you can take it home and review the six, take five. So just come up here and grab one of these. There's not enough to hand them out to everyone, so I just put them here for people that really want it. Okay. If I can see this, oh, I can take it over to the piano. Good. Now, what we've got here is some music notation. Two measures of music. And I'm going to play that for you on the piano. And this is a, if you know the answer to this already because I didn't get the box on there quick enough, don't, don't answer it. But those of you that didn't see what's underneath this box, see if you can tell me what song this is, the first two measures of. Now, don't be fooled. This is not going to necessarily sound like the song, but the melody is there. It's just that I've played with it a bit. hear it again? Is that enough? Is that enough to know what it, you want to hear it again? Okay. What is it? Yankee Doodle went to town. Listen again, you'll hear Yankee Doodle went to town. you can do with music it's great now what have we learned about this little piece of Yankee Doodle went to town well first of all up at the top is an F no it isn't oh yeah there it is there's an F and that doesn't mean it's in the key of F in fact what key is it in oh yes it is it's in the key of F. But that F doesn't tell you that it's in the key of F. That's a dynamic marking which stands for Italian forte, which means loud. So that's why I played it loud. Now, this 4 and this 2 up here is called the time signature. And the time signature tells you about how long the notes should be held. And the top number, that's this one, which is a four, the top number tells you how many beats there are per measure. Now, that means that in a measure, you know what a measure is? That's up until this little line here. So in that measure, there are going to be one, two, three, four beats. That's all you're going to have in here, four beats. Now, the bottom note, that's this one, or the bottom number, tells you what kind of note receives one beat. Now, the two is a half note because, well, just take my word for it. <laughs> two means a half note. Because I know why, because you have two halves in a whole, right? Okay. <laughs> one, over two, one, over, one over two is a half, therefore. Okay, so what have we learned with this four two? We've learned, first of all, how many beats are there in a measure? Out loud, real. Four. What kind of note receives one beat? No. Because here are the different kinds of notes. A circle like that, open, without any black in it, that's a whole note. A circle without any black in it, with a little flag on it, that's a half note. A circle that's filled in with a little flag is a quarter note. 
and a circle filled in with a little flag and a little, little this is the third green, <laughs> third hole, little tail, is a quarter note. So, at eighth note, I'm sorry, at eighth note. Thank you. Now, one more thing you have to know about time. A dot after a note. See that little dot there? And where do you find it up here? There it is. That dot after the note increases the time that you hold that note by one half. So that if there's a whole note with a dot after it, and the whole note is receiving four beats, you're going to hold that whole note for six beats, because half of four is two, and four plus two is six. You with me? All right. So let's go back to up here. Since it's four beats in the measure, and a half note gets a beat, let's see if it works in the measure. There's a half note. One beat, right? There's a half note. One beat. That's two. There's a half note. One beat. That's three. There's a half note. One beat. That's four. One, two, three, four. Yankee doodle. One, two, three, four. That's what you got in that first measure. What's all this other junk on in here? That's my junk. I put that in there, and those are quarter notes, and they're doing all kinds of different things, but it still only equals four beats. Because if a half note gets one beat, and a quarter note is half of a half note, how many beats is a quarter note going to get? One half a beat. So if you got four beats in the measure, and you're going to have a whole bunch of quarter notes, how many quarter notes are you going to have in that measure? Let's see if we have eight. See if it works. One, two, three, four, five, six. Uh-oh. Oh, here it is. Seven, eight. Or one, two, three, four, five, six, and two are eight. See how it works? That tells you how to beat time. Uh, here's Yankee Doodle down here. This is the way we know it. Now, instead of with majesty and forte, we're going to do it quickly, moderately loud, and we're going to put dots under all the notes. And what does that mean? Staccato. So instead of reading this thing, which some of you didn't recognize as Yankee Doodle, if I were to read this and go, everybody would know that's Yankee Doodle. All right, let's move on. We're going to sing a song now that's going to be a challenge for you. It's the hymn, The Lord Will Come. Now, you don't have it in your Trinity hymnal, and we don't even have all the music on the overhead. However, we do have the melody on the overhead. And I'm going to need my faithful helper up here. Who's our guy? Sanchez? Bill will do it. Bill will stand it. You're going to have to do these two for me. Here's the first one. When you get to the end of that, here comes the second baby. And uh, first of all, I want to tell you about this hymn. The words are written... You can put the first one on there. The, the first... The words are written by John Milton of Paradise Lost and Paradise Regained fame. London was the place both of John Milton's birth and his death. The hymn actually is in Trinity Hymnal, the red Trinity Hymnal. I don't know whether it's in the blue one or not. But is it in there? Okay, have a look at 294, and uh, you'll have the words at least before you. Only half of them, however, are here. And I've got all of them up here. You only get the first half of it. Now, we're not going to use this version 
and Trinity Hymnal because I think that this tune is also a bit diddly and it omits uh, half of the mighty words. And I think it's unfitting for the mighty words of this hymn. But it, it all, mainly because it omits halves of stanzas originally assembled by Milton. Now, where did John Milton get his text for this hymn? He got it from the Psalms. This is a wonderful psalm because it's from a number of psalms. It's a close paraphrase of six verses from three separate psalms. When you study this, this psalm uh, selection, you'll find that there are parts of it from Psalm 85, then Psalm 82, and then Psalm 89. And what the hymn does is it sets forth a marvelous theology of God's coming. The first advent of God, that's Christmas, salvation is at hand and glory shall appear. You find that in verse 2. Then we get to the second advent that hasn't happened yet the return of Jesus Christ to this earth. We're told there that he will rise to judge the earth. We know that hasn't happened yet. Now this arrangement of themes from the Psalms makes a beautiful biblical theological statement. What Milton is saying is this. God is coming personally to do all his holy will. He came personally in Jesus on the first Christmas. And he's coming back again personally at the end of time to close out human history. And the result of what God is doing in coming is nothing less than salvation for the people of God, but also judgment on the wicked. And you'll read about judgment of the wicked in this selection. Now the tune that we will be using is from the Genevan Psalter of 1551. And this tune is in a peculiar and strange-sounding mode. It's neither major nor minor, exactly. Now, what are... What's that? Plain, like... Yes, plain. What are, what are these modes? Well, modes are, are, key, are um, scales that use the white keys only. Here's, here are the modes. For instance, here's the... Uh, the regular mode. Here's the Dorian mode. And it goes right on up. Each mode using starting on a different note on the white key. Now this tune is in the Dorian mode. Dorian for D. So if you think about D as being the first note of the tune, and then you go on all white keys. You don't put the F sharp in. You don't put the C sharp in. You just play only white keys. Now, what happened was, I found this tune in a book. I think it was a Christian, maybe it was in the Christian Reformed Psalter hymnal. I found it somewhere. And they put all the sharps back in. And the song was sung not like this, but... Because everybody was used to that and they couldn't get the congregations to sing it in this beautiful Dorian mode from 1551. But we're going to do it because it fits the song so beautifully well. Not only does the tune fit the song, and why does it fit the song beautifully well? Because the song talks about God's coming, which is good news and bad news. For whom is the coming of God good news? Us. For whom is the coming of God bad news? Unbelievers, yes. And that's why the Dorian mode is so helpful, because it's neither major nor minor. It's just something else. Not only that, but the meter. Now you know what meter is, don't you? Because we just had that in our last take five. The meter is particularly appropriate for the tune. Notice how the irregular lengths of the first three measures express the text. Now up here, the first three measures are one, two, and three. Now look at the text. The music should always serve the text. Music should always serve the text, not the other way around. Whenever you write a song, and we're going to write a song, by the way, this week. Yes, us. The first thing we're going to get is a text. We're going to get words, and once we get the words, then we're going to set it to a tune. 
You never do it the other way around. You don't write a tune and then say, what would be some good words to put to the tune? So first comes the text. The Lord will come and not be slow. Okay, the Lord will come. The people of God in the Old Testament could sing that, couldn't they? The Lord will come. But did he, did he come soon? Didn't seem like it. Seemed like forever before he came. But when he came, it was just the right time. And Christmas didn't happen too slow. Christmas happened just when God wanted it to. How about the second coming of Christ? Does that seem like it's, it's coming real quickly? No, it doesn't. It just seems to wait and wait and wait. It seems like it's very slow. But he's going to come at exactly the right time. And when he comes, it will not be slow. So when you sing this hymn, you're going to start out slowly. Now, why is it slow? Because what are these notes? Half notes. So they're going to be relatively long. The Lord will... But now what happens? What are the next notes? Quarter notes. Now, are they faster or slower than half notes? Faster. Because what what are we saying? The Lord will come and not be slow. So we're going to sing... The Lord will come and not be slow. Isn't that neat? The words are absolutely brought forward and served by the music. Now, as I said, the overhead uh, in the overhead, I, uh, I've restored the original Dorian mode, and there are no sharps or flats anywhere in here. Uh, here was one, and I scrubbed it out. Here was another one, and I scrubbed it out. Wherever you see that little black stuff there, that's where I got rid of those naughty sharps and flats that don't belong there. Now recognize, j- just sing this song as though you're in the key of C. In other words, all of these notes are the white notes on the piano. Okay? Just sing it like you're in the key of C, but you're not in the key of C. You're in that marvelous, special bittersweet Dorian mode. All right. Let's see if we can do this. I don't know whether you can see the words, but it'll help some some of the words you've got in your book, but I hope you can see some of them up here. Here's the way the music goes. Here we go. Ready? The Lord will come and not be slow. His footsteps cannot hurt. Before Him righteousness shall go. minor at the end because you're in a, in a minor triad, but as you sang the song, you didn't feel like you were singing a sad song, did you? There was enough freshness and brightness in it. It's that wonderful, bittersweet Dorian mode. Isn't that neat that God allows us to do that? Let's sing the second verse, surely. Surely to such as
third verse, but that gives you an idea of what can be done with uh, a different kind of tune. What's that? Yeah, I want that off. Okay, next we're ready for listening. We're going to listen to uh, Mendelssohn's Elijah. And uh, how many of you have heard this oratorio? Right. This is the place where Elijah gets taken up to heaven in a golden chariot. This is gorgeous music. Get the picture. This isn't a dream, folks. This is really happening. Let's hear it. Bible, isn't it? Okay, I was looking for our schedule. What time are we supposed to stop tonight, Al? In 10 minutes. I can still go some more. Okay, is music for everyone? You bet your booties, buddy. Are you into music? We'll get a variety of answers, but very few people will respond, "Uh uh-uh, not at all. Whatever you answer, two important attitudes will in most cases be exhibited in answer to that question, are you into music? Some people will say, "Ah, I feel kind of sorted out of music. I don't understand it, and I feel sort of sorted out. Others would say, I'm clearly into music. But in either case, people sometimes feel that this sorting in or out of music is based on their performance. That doesn't have to be. I'm here tonight to announce that to you. You don't have to be a great singer in order to enjoy great singing. And you don't have to be a great 
piano player or player of any instrument to enjoy beautiful instrumental music. Music needs listeners as well as performers. And I'm here to announce to you tonight that if you just listen to music and enjoy it, you are as important as the performer. Where would the performers be without anyone to hear them? But there are also other important contributions to music in which you might be engaged other than just listening to it or performing it. Listen to these types of musical membership. Planning music. Well, this is not only composing the music, but also choosing it. Are you ever responsible for picking a song for your beginner's Sunday school class? Then you're an important musician. Pick a song that will be just right for those little ones to sing. Performing music is another type of musical membership. Deciding which live and recorded music you're going to hear, what concerts you're going to go to, what records, what tapes you're going to put on your machines at home and in your car, is musical membership. You're making music all of the time when you do that. Someone has estimated that if you spent 40 hours a week for 50 weeks a year, it would take you, did you hear that? You're going to spend now 40 hours a week for 50 weeks in a year. It would take you 30 years to listen to every current musical recording. That's how long it would take. So you better get started. And by that time, the only trouble is you never catch up, John, because what happens after 30 years goes by? You've got another 30 years already been written, so you'll never catch up. Listening to music is as important as making music. Remember that 1 Corinthians 12.22 says, Those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And that music listeners seem to be weaker because they're not, they're not performers and they don't know what key it's in. <laughs> but they enjoy listening to it, and they are very necessary. Where would musicians be without listeners? Now, um, uh, Brother Technician, I've got uh, a song, Oh Happy Day, by the Edwin Hawkins Singers, and I haven't given that to you, but I'm going to give it to you now. I hope that this isn't too late. This one is a tape, but I believe it's at the right place. Oh, happy day. How many of you have ever heard the Ed Edwin Hawkins singers? There are 11 of them. Boy, it sounds like a 120-voice choir with uh, lots of musicians. I hope this tape is in the right place. This is an ensemble, as I say, comprised of only 11 singers, and I think you'll agree that such a small group surely... That's the right place. In the second section, they repeat the phrase, Oh, happy day, 18 times. And my question to you is this, and you tell me when we're done. Do you consider this mindless repetition? Don't prejudge. Wait with your answer until you, after you've heard the selection. another song. Let's see if you can find Oh Happy Day. Back it up. This is probably at the end of the last time I played it at the last <laughs> music conference. What's that? We'll start off tomorrow's section with Oh Happy Day in the right place. That's it. I, I want, they want to hear it tonight. I, I've still got three minutes. Do 
that we could use some of that emotion sometimes in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Did, did you, do you like that? Okay, that's it for tonight. <laughs>